Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. I do have a bit of a cough. I'm going to try not to cough <coughs> into the microphone too much during my sermon, but bear with me. <coughs> Sorry. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? So as we continue our time together this morning, I want to tell you something. I want us to begin by telling you something that you can only believe by faith. You need to believe, if you're a Christian, that you are at this very moment sitting on the sovereign soil of heaven. Who knew it would be so blue, right? It's like it at my church, blue carpet, blue windows, feels a little bit like you're in a fish tank, right? You are sitting on the so this local church, even here, even you, even us, we are an outpost, an embassy of heaven on earth. Now, if you are a Christian, you are a citizen of, of heaven, of that kingdom. You were born into that citizenship by the Holy Spirit of God through the grace of Jesus Christ according to the eternal purposes and plans of God our Father. Amen. What that means is that when you enter into the church, you should, even for all of its flaws, even for all of your sins, you should feel like you're at home, right? You should feel like you are where you were meant to be, like you're putting on an old pair of house shoes, like it just feels right. My daughter, my second daughter, Isabella, she has dual citizenship. She was born in Peru when Amber and I were serving there as missionaries, but her parents are American citizens, therefore dual citizenship, and all Christians are like Isabella. We all have dual citizenship. That is, we are not only citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens of this fallen world. Now, there obviously has to be a priority of our citizenships. One has to take precedence over the other, right? Which one is the most important one? You tell me. Heaven, that's right. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is infinitely greater than the glory of every other earthly kingdom combined. The kingdom of heaven was purchased by blood that is more precious than any blood and all the blood that has ever been spilled in any of the worlds that, wars that the history of the world has ever known. The kingdom of heaven has a charter. In the United States, we call it a constitution. And, and the constitution of heaven is wiser and more ethical and more true than anything produced by the mind of any earthly philosopher. And it promises greater freedoms and blessings than any political system that this world has ever known. And therefore, it demands infinitely greater loyalty than any ruler or nation has ever deserved. Now in this morning's text, God speaks to us about our duties as citizens of heaven. You can see right there at the beginning of verse 27. And I love that, by the way. When I say right there in verse 27, I can hear people looking down, eyes on the text. Praise God for a well-trained congregation hungry for the word. There in verse 27, Paul says, he uses this phrase in your English Bibles, it says, the, your manner of life. Do you see that? This is an English translation of a Greek word that I really can't pronounce, polytuestha. 
Polytuesta is the Greek word from which we derive our English word politics. The verb literally means to live as a citizen. To live as a citizen. And you can see that in chapter 3, verse 20. You don't have to flip there. But Paul, using the same Greek word, says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you have to remember the context. You have to remember who Paul is writing to. The church at Philippi is populated primarily by by ex-military, right? Philippi was an, a, a place where they sent retired military. And so as, as the, the Roman Empire, so as Paul is telling this to the Philippians, you have to, you have, to have a, a manner of life that's worthy of your citizenship. Citizenship would have been a point of pride for these readers, these listeners, Right? And so Paul has to make it clear, listen, although you did serve in the Roman military and although you did fight and though you did earn your citizenship and in the eyes of the world, that's all very special and it's all very important. At the end of the day, it doesn't even begin to compare with your citizenship in heaven. So make sure you live like that's true. That's his message. Live like your citizenship in heaven is more important than your citizenship in Rome. So brothers and sisters, live like your citizenship in heaven is more important than your citizenship in the United States of America. Now before we dive into the, some of the finer points of what's happening here, uh, we, we need to make sure that we're speaking the same language. We, we need, Paul says you have to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we just, especially in this day and age, we can't assume that we all agree on what that means. In a well-trained, well-discipled church, I'm sure that there's basic agreement, and that's good, but to repeat myself is no problem for me, and it's beneficial for you, right? That's the Apostle Paul, also to the Philippians. The gospel is the joyful declaration. You hear me, curmudgeonly Christians? It's not the angry or anxious or confused or frustrated declaration. It's the joyful declaration that the kingdom of God is both at hand and victorious. It's the message that the king has defeated all of his enemies at the cross, and more than that, he has displayed, he's flexing, he's showing off his power and his glory in the resurrection of his son. It doesn't stop there. The gospel is also the promise that the son is going to come back again in the fullness of his glory to rule and reign forever. Come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, God is calling all people everywhere to himself if they would only repent and receive this free offer of grace. This is the gospel. Live, says Paul, like this is true. So I have one question for you this afternoon. Only one. This is going to be the kind of Refrain of the sermon. Are you living like this is true? Are you living in a manner worthy of this gospel? Now, the word worthy that Paul uses here in verse 27, it means to convey the worth of something, to convey the value of something. So let me just show you Two places. You can turn there if you're a Bible ninja, like if you have a bunch of jewels and you're a wanna crown, but I'm gonna be going pretty quickly, okay? Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Do you see, you see, what, that, you see what, what Jesus is doing there? He's saying, listen, I'm worth more than your mom and dad. And then he goes on and he says, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You, you hear me, moms and dads who are kind of idolizing your children? Jesus says, I'm more important than your kids. You have to act like that. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay? So I'm worth more even than your comfort and your life. You can see this elsewhere in Romans 16. Paul says that he prays that the Roman Christians will welcome Phoebe, quote, in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. That is, when she comes, you have to be able, you have to demonstrate that she's worthy 
right? That, that her work matters in the church. And so what does that look like? He says, you have to help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well, right? Her work is so valuable. You need to treat her like that's true. Finally, you see it in 3 John. John says, you will do well to send these, these, these missionaries, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, right? When you send them off, send them off in such a way that conveys their worth, right? Do we care about missionaries? Do we believe in the necessity of the work, right? Do we want to honor men such as these? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay, well, so act like it. Send them off well, what, what, I, what I'm trying to show you from this brief survey of three texts is that Scripture frequently calls us to examine not only our lives but our actions to see if we're actually communicating the worth of that which is worthy. And in this morning's text, Paul is saying, are you living like the gospel is as worthy as you should think it is as a Christian? Now, once again, at the beginning of verse 27... You see the word only. <clears throat> you see the word only. It, that's in the ESV. If you're in, in the NIV, it'll say whatever happens. If you're using the NLT, it'll say above all else. If you're using the Sean DeMars translation, which I suspect none of you are, it'll say no matter what. It's, what, what Paul is doing here is, is he's, he's sort of wrapping up chapter one with a point of emphasis. This only is not an over-translation in the English. It's there. He's saying, listen, I need to put a fine point on this for you. Here is what matters most. Examine your life and make sure that you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now listen, this call to examination from me to you this morning should lead you to respond. I'm not just, this is not just a rhetorical demonstration, right? I hope that you're not sitting there sort of scrolling through your Instagram feed in your mind. This question, are you living in a manner worthy of the gospel, is meant to lead you to honestly examine your life, which I know is kind of difficult to do in real time. Maybe you'll spend some more time examining your life in, in, in small groups or in your devotional time. But I think there are basically three ways that you can respond to a question like this. The first way is you can, you can say, you know, I think by God's grace, yes, I do think I'm living in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not perfect. I'm, you know, I'm falling and I'm, I'm striving in the right direction. I fail, but I think so. I think I am. Another way that you can respond is you can say, you know, Sean, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm a new Christian or I've been a Christian for a long time and I'm maybe since coming to New Covenant Baptist for the first time, beginning to really understand the gospel and what that means and all of its implications for my life. And actually, now that you say it, I'm not even sure if I am living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or you might be really honest and say, you know, Sean, I'm not. I'm professing to be a Christian and I'm, I'm hiding sin. I'm not following Jesus faithfully. I'm not demonstrating his worth. And like, every area of my life. My hope and prayer is that by the end of our time together this morning that we will all, by God's grace, want to grow in our faithfulness as citizens of heaven. So I, so I have three points for you this morning. Uh, note takers, here they are. Uh, point number one, fighting. Point number two, unity. And point number three, testimony. Point number one, fighting. <coughs> so the, the first thing that you can do to make sure that you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel is to fight the fight of faith fearlessly. That word is important. If you're taking notes, make sure you put that in all caps or bold it or italicize it or underline it or put a star next to it. Whatever you do in your note taking is that we fight fearlessly. Uh, which, which one in sports is more important, offense or defense? Both. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about sports. 
right? So I'm all show and no go. But from what I gather after like 20 minutes of reading on the internet is that the opinion is pretty split. This guy's got it figured out. He says both. Everyone has to agree with that. Right, But some people think that it's sport-specific, right? Like in, in, in one sport, it's offense, like basketball offense matters more, football defense matters more. Other people, uh, well, some, in soccer, nobody cares about that, right? So, <laughs> no, it's the world sport, I know. I'll tell you what I do know. The, the sliver of sports that I do understand is combat sports. And what I know from combat sports is that a good defense can only be built after you've established a solid, excuse me, a good offense can only be built after you've established a solid defense. Here's the idea. In combat sports, people are always trying to hurt you. They're trying to break a limb or they're trying to tackle you or they're trying to punch you or kick you. And unless you feel like they can't do that to you, you're never really going to open up and launch your own attack. Well, the same thing is true for uh, in the military. So I served five years in the army. And one of the things that you learn there is that you have to be very defensively sound and only after you're sure that the enemy can't get you can you then begin to positively launch an offensive attack. Now, why are we talking about this? Because in this morning's text, Paul employs military metaphor or battle metaphor. When he talks about standing firm, that's military language. Remember who he's talking to, right? He's talking to these probably retired military guys who were in the church, right? So when he says that you have to stand firm, that's the language of defense, right? When you stand firm, you resist the onslaught of the enemy. And then when he talks about striving, when he says strive together side by side, that's the language of of moving forward, charging, fighting on, powering through. Now listen, It makes sense that Paul would speak this way, use these kinds of word pictures when talking to ex-military, but, you know, you're like, well, I'm not military or ex-military. You may not be, but the fact of the matter is, friends, one of the most common metaphors that the Lord uses to describe your Christian life in his word is the language of a warrior, of a soldier. It's the the metaphor of warfare and battle. Let me just run through some examples. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul, 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as, who can finish that? A good soldier. That's right. First Timothy chapter one, verse eighteen, wage the good warfare. So yes, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to be at war. Now, sometimes in our in our spiritual warfare, we assume a more defensive posture, sometimes we assume a more offensive posture. Do not overdo this metaphor. Don't spend your time trying to analyze every aspect of your Christian life being like, am I being defensive or offensive right now? That's not what Paul wants for you. What he wants is for you to understand that you're in a fight, okay? If you don't feel like you're in a fight, something's wrong. You're complacent. You're comfortable. Now look at verse 28. Paul says, after talking about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, he says, he says you shouldn't be frightened in anything by your opponents. So now, Paul, he's addressing the attitude of, of us as we engage in this warfare. In order to fight in a way that's truly worthy of the gospel, we have to fight in a way that is fearless. If I had to guess, I would say that most of us in this room have never been in like a real fight. I'm not talking about like you and your brother, the PlayStation controller, you know, like some kicks were thrown, some words were said. I mean like a real fight. Like somebody could get really hurt. And that's good. (laughs) Praise God if you have not been in that experience. But let's do a little thought experiment, okay? Let's say that right after service, you were going to have to go out into the parking lot, which, don't you know, is where most of, that's where you fight. If you're going to fight, you fight in the parking lot, right? <laughs> Let, let's say that right after service, you have to go out to the parking lot, and you have to get into a fight. 
a real fight. And, and your opponent in this fight is, is not a slouch. He's, or she, is really tough, really mean, highly skilled. Like, you could get really hurt. But there's just no way around it. You have to go out into the parking lot and you have to get into a fight. Uh, some of us are nervous just thinking about it, right? Your hands get all sweaty, start breathing. Breathing gets a little more rapid and shallow. All right. Now let's imagine a similar yet slightly different scenario. The, you still have to go out there and fight, okay? You still do. And the person you have to fight is still highly skilled, really mean, really tough, really dangerous, and you can get really hurt. But, but in this scenario, you know that you're going to win. I mean, like, you know, if your boys aren't, like, hyping you up, like, oh, you got this, dog. Like, no, 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 like, no, no, no. You're, that's usually when you know you're going to lose, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're hyping you up way too much, right? No, 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 like, I'm talking like, like the Lord has come down and told you, like, you're going to have to get into this fight, but you're going to win. Does that change something in you? I must have gotten to a thousand fights before I became a Christian, and the only time I was never afraid, even I never acted afraid, right? But the only time truly I was never afraid was when I knew I was going to win. But here's the thing. That is exactly the kind of fight that you're in right now. You're in a fight with an enemy who's really tough, really mean, really scary, highly trained, and you're not any of those things. You're weak. You're unwise. You're sinful. That's why Jesus calls you a sheep. You often need to be rescued. But Jesus has already, he's promised you're going to win. Not because you're going to win, but because he already won, right? But that doesn't mean you don't have to fight. Now, what that means, is if Satan really is defeated, if sin really is defeated, if death really is defeated, and that means that as you engage in this battle with the world, with the flesh, with the devil, you should be fighting with a particular attitude. You shouldn't be fighting timidly like you, oh, I might get hit and lose this fight. No, you should be fighting fearlessly. Your victory is as certain as the empty tomb of Jesus. So, when you read verse 28... Not frightened in anything. That's for you. You know how we do when we listen to sermons, right? Especially when the preacher's like getting on to somebody and he's really like lighting up somebody about some particular sin. You're like, yeah, I hope so-and-so is listening. Thank you, Lord. I've been wanting to say it to him. I didn't have to. It came up in the text. I hope they're listening, right? But we can also do that, especially if we're timid and if we're fearful Christians, when somebody comes up in the pulpit and says, you don't have to be afraid, you're thinking, oh yeah, that's true for them. Yeah, they don't have to be afraid. No, friend, it's true for you. you if you are a spirit-indwelt, blood-bought believer, you don't have to be afraid. Listen, <laughs> you may be afraid of sleeping alone in the house at night when your husband is out of town. You may be a, afraid of the rent going up again. You may be afraid of spiders. You may be afraid of a little hard work. But you never have to be afraid of anything from your opponents in the gospel. Point number two. Unity. <clears throat> so if you sort of divide the world up, you have two basic different kinds of, you have sort of the east and the west, right? That's the the famous contrast, and uh, it's, so in the East, I think it's, it's often the case that people place too much emphasis on corporate identity, which conversely means that in the West, we can place too much emphasis on individual identity, right? So what, what that looks like for us, even if we may have like Eastern ancestry, or in, like you live in the West, this is getting into you, and and as you read the Bible, you probably read it through an individualistic lens, right? Instead of thinking like we, us, our, you think of I, me, my. You, you can hear it. Listen to when people pray corporately, right? They say, I just want to, but you're in a room full of people. 
the Lord's Prayer, our Father, right? Lead us not into temptation, right? Deliver us from evil. It's meant to be this corporate thing, but we interpret everything through the lens of the individual. Now, why does that matter for this, this, this afternoon? Because as you're reading this text, you might be tempted to make too much individual application of it. That's not wrong. I just led you in an individual application. What I'm saying is, is you, might, you might miss the corporate aspect of what Paul is saying here, right? What I want you to see is that what Paul is saying is primarily aimed at the church in Philippi. It's aimed at the entity, the organism, not the individual organ. With that in mind, let's go back and read verse 27 again. And this time I want you to see it through the, put away your Western individualism and like read it through the lens of the corporate nature that I think Paul had in mind. Only let your, me or us, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, now you can see, right, that this is actually the you and the you're there is corporate, right? It wouldn't make sense to tell a person with one mind that they need to have one mind, right? It wouldn't make sense to tell a person who has one spirit that they need to have one spirit. You don't tell one person to stand side by side, right? This is corporate language. So what I want you to see here is that our fearless fighting is a group project, right? Our standing, our striving, it's a collective effort in the church, right? Um, you'll notice at the end of verse 27, Paul says, standing side by side. Now, again, you might be tempted to interpret that through your own modern contextual lens. You might think of like a protest or a march or something like that. For, for Paul, this is a military metaphor, right? Uh, when, you, when you think about military stuff, you might be thinking of like men storming beaches in Normandy or tactical teams clearing houses in Iraq. But in, in the ancient world of the Bible, uh, the vast majority of combat was fought in a phalanx formation. So a, fa- a phalanx formation is where you have all these rows of soldiers and then they form in columns as well. But on the front row, every soldier has a shield right? And then there's a little notch in the shield, and then in the notch they bring their big long spear. And so everyone on the front row would put their shield in the ground, and then they would interlock the edges of their shield to kind of create armor for the entire formation. And then they would put the spears out over the top of the armor, and then they would march forward like some crazy ancient steely porcupine thing, right? Hard to hit, easy to stab people. That's what a phalanx is. Now, this kind of military formation requires tight and tremendous unit cohesion. When I joined the military, the first thing that they have you do is they have you learn how to march, right? Because you would not believe how difficult it is to get five people in a row to walk at the same time. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly difficult, right? Now, imagine that this is how you're going out into battle. Everyone has to stay side by side in order for this phalanx to be effective. You have to be shoulder to shoulder. If one guy gets out in front, there's a a chink in the armor, right? There's a break. Danger is imminent. So here's what Paul is telling the Philippians. As a church, this is how you have to fight, right? You have to be in a tight unified, syncopated, coordinated formation. Friends, listen to me. This is in the Bible because you need to hear it. In God's providence, I am here preaching this word to you this morning because you need to hear this word about what it looks like to move forward side by side. I haven't heard any rumors. James hasn't told me anything about the unity of the church not being solid Praise God if your unity is good right now, but guess what? We live in, I mean, it's crazy. Satan is working overtime to try to tear the church apart. Don't you see it? Don't you feel it? If not, join Twitter. In five minutes, you'll see, right? Like, Satan is working overtime 
to try to tear the church apart. We have to think well, brothers and sisters, you, New Covenant Baptist Church, have to think well about what it looks like to have unity as a church. So I have three sub-points I want to give you here in point two. I think they'll be pretty quick. Number one is church membership. Listen, I know you guys, I know you guys know about church membership, which means you might be most in danger of forgetting that which is obvious or assuming it, right? Isn't that how it goes? First generation gets excited about it. Second generation begins to assume it. Third generation loses it, right? Every local church is its own little phalanx formation. This local church is a phalanx formation. And yet some Christians don't want to join the phalanx. They may want to be near the phalanx with their own little dinky shield and spear, but they don't actually want to get side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And there could be a bunch of different reasons for that. Maybe they don't want to be under the authority of the person who's calling the steps of the march. Maybe they think that they don't need the phalanx. They think, I've got my shield. I've got my spear. I'm going to be okay. Right? I've, I've known Christians who think, you know, I'm, I'm near enough to the phalanx that if anything goes down, I think I'll be okay. Friends, listen to me. If you are in any one of those categories, you are in danger. This is one of the nice things about being a guest preacher, right? I get to say the hard stuff, and then I get to go. <laughs> if you have a problem with what I'm about to say, uh, see James <laughs> after service. If you are a visitor, I'm intentionally trying to make you uncomfortable if you are not joining, not just this church, but a local church. I want you to feel a little bit embarrassed. If, if you know, and there are other people here who know that like, there's really no good reason that you haven't joined the church, you just haven't done it yet, you're in danger. And you might be saying to me, well, you know, me and my family, we're okay. We've been fine, we've been doing this, we haven't joined the church yet, and we're doing fine. Friend, do not presume upon the grace of God. You could be overwhelmed by the enemy in an instant in an instant. It is only the grace of God that has allowed you out on this battlefield to persevere, to survive without being connected to the phalanx. And even if you have survived, is that what we're aiming for? Are we just trying to survive? Or do we want to thrive? Do we want to contribute? Do we want to build? Do we want to not only hold fast, but do we want to strive and move forward as soldiers in the Lord's army. Your king is calling you into formation where you will be safer and stronger and more useful. Heed his calling. Subpoint number two, <coughs> practicing unity. In order for a phalanx to move forward, everyone has to work together. They have to be of one mind. That's what Paul says in verse 27, striving side by side together with one mind, with one mind. If you've ever tried to lead like more than one person to do anything, hey babe, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't care. All right, chilies. No, not chilies. All right, fine. What about five guys? No, I had five guys yesterday. Right? We're literally one flesh, me and my wife, and we can't be one mind, right? It's really difficult to have all these people who have different minds to have one mind, right? Even in the church, right? Because we have all our own unique experiences and emotions and perspectives, none of which are ever in complete agreement, right? So how do we get all of these different minds to function as one mind so that we can move forward effectively as a phalanx? Well, the answer's right there in verse 27. We can have one mind because, look, um, with one mind, striving side, oh, sorry, right before it says one mind, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's the answer. How do we have one mind? We can have one mind because we share in the same spirit. Let's take a quick little detour. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> I 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 12. The sound of the Bible pages turning is glorious. Say amen if you're there. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Guys, listen to this. This Just, sorry, this is not in my notes, but... The Bible sometimes peels back the curtain and shows you the inner life of God. It doesn't always do it. It's not on every page. But when it's there, you have to, you have to, you have to stop, recognize it, appreciate it. God is about to tell you how some of his spiritual anatomy works, okay? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, this is somewhat the language of accommodation, right? We don't really... When we get to heaven and we really get to see what God is like, it's going to be a little bit cooler than this. But this, this is the Lord accommodating himself to our understanding. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that per- person, which, like, I don't know what you're thinking right now. The only person who knows what you're thinking right now is you. Your spirit knows what you're thinking, okay? Now, by way of analogy, Paul says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. How can you know what God's thinking right now about anything from the war in Ukraine to Israel-Hamas to your homeschooling or versus public schooling conversation? How do you know what God is thinking? The only way you can know is if the Spirit of God reveals it to you because no one knows the mind of God except for the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now, brothers and sisters, do not just casually experience this next verse, okay? Now, we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. How can we know the mind of God? Because He's given us His Spirit. His Spirit knows His mind. His Spirit reveals His thinking, His thought life. And He puts His Spirit in each one of us. Every covenanted member of this church If you are truly regenerate, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And it's like a conduit. And the Spirit is constantly channeling the mind of God down into your experience. And so that's how, for example, when was the last time you guys had a members meeting? Last month. And did you guys vote on anything? And was it basically unanimous? That should blow your mind. How do you get a church, how many members do you have? 140? How do you get 140 people to agree on something? How do you do that? On a budget, right? You all give generously. How do we agree on how we're going to spend that money? How do we agree on who's going to be our pastor, who's going to be our deacon, who we're going to receive into membership, who we're going to excommunicate? These are all eternally weighty things that we, a lot of us probably have really strong opinions about. How is it possible that we ever make it through a church meeting without killing each other? Because we all have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is conducting us on the battlefield. He is calling out the steps. He's giving us our marching orders so that we move forward side by side in this war that he has called us to. Sub-point number three. Unity is one of our greatest weapons. Friends, let me acknowledge before I kind of get into this that a lot of heresy has been protected in the church under the supposed banner of unity, right? A lot of sin has been accommodated in in the church on behalf of pleas for unity. Recently, Rick Warren basically tried to upend the entire Southern Baptist Convention, 40,000 churches, and tried to lead them astray away from the biblical teaching about male headship in the church, And the banner that he kept on throwing up was unity. We have to do this for the sake of unity. No, friends, our unity has to be unity in the truth of God's word and God's gospel, right? Theological liberals in particular love to use the doctrine of Christian unity to eviscerate the gospel, period. Having said that, my fear in my own local church, where nobody's like reading the purpose-driven life, where theological liberalism is not something that I'm particularly worried about in our context, my fear is that we're going to throw our lot in with the hyper-fundamentalists. 
the second level separationists. And we're going to throw the broader church that's out there in this world to the curb. They're not exactly nine marks like we're nine marks, and therefore we can't have any kind of meaningful unity with them. Friends, that's the opposite error, right? My fear is that we are going to treat the biblical doctrine of unity as if it only belongs to progressives. You see this right now amongst a lot, a lot of my conservative Christian friends, and of whom I am the foremost, by the way. But like, they're afraid to say the word justice. I'm like, uh, hey guys, that word doesn't belong to the Democrats or like progressive Christians. That word belongs to Yahweh and to his people. They may misuse it, they may abuse it, they're trying to change, but that word belongs to us. Unity belongs to us. It does not belong to the progressive wing of the church. It actually belongs to the wing of the church that wants to remain faithful to the gospel, right? So let me just say this. Friends, you have to be pursuing unity. You have to. Because guess what? The, the, the battle is larger than this local church. Your little phalanx, it's not that little, right? But your little phalanx, it's going to join up with another phalanx. That's how, you know, that's how it is in the army. You have, you have squads, and then you have, wait, it's been a long time since I've been in. <laughs> you got your squad, and then you have your platoon, and then your platoon becomes a unit, and then your unit becomes something else that I don't remember. A brigade, and then your brigade. Anyways, but do you see what I'm saying? Think about it in your person, right? You have all these organs, but the organs come together to form an organism, right? The body of Christ is bigger than this local church. You have your little phalanx, but then there are other phalanxes, and you have to find some way somehow to come together on this battlefield and march together forward side by side for the sake of the gospel. It's, yeah, it's going to be hard. No institution, no arrangement is going to be perfect. There's always going to be issues, and sometimes you're going to have to break ranks and separate from one phalanx that apparently has chosen to switch sides and serve the enemy, but that's fine. You can't go, oh, okay, well, they, they betrayed the gospel, therefore we can do it by ourselves. No, you just need to find another phalanx that's doing things well and join up with them. I'm rambling now, so let's move on to point three. The shortest point in the sermon. Now you're supposed to go, oh, boo, it's almost over. No. <laughs> point number three, testimony. <clears throat> I just want to make one more observation from this short text. Here it is, note takers. You're fearless, that's point number one, and unified, that's point number two, fighting. Your fearless and unified fighting is a testimony to those who oppose you in the gospel. Um, look at verse 28 again. Oh, I guess we've got to get back over to Philippians, huh? Okay, Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why? Because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I love that he said, do you see that? He says that's from God, like, because he's calling them to action. He's calling them to fight, which means that in our flesh, we might be tempted to think that if we do have the victory, that we did it for ourselves, right? Right? And so Paul's like, but just so we're clear, you, as you fight this battle, when the Lord gives you victory, you, he fought the battle for you, right? But our testimony is twofold to our enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We win, you lose. Uh, uh, just do a little thought experiment, right? Imagine that there are two kingdoms at war, and you're fighting on the side of the righteous king who's putting down a great and terrible rebellion in the land. Now you have signed up to be in the king's army and you're out on the battlefield and you're fighting day and night for the glory of the king's name. You're, you're pushing back the forces of darkness. You're leading captives out of the darkness and into the light. Now, what Paul is saying here is that as you're out there on the battlefield, if you're not unified and if you're not fearless, it will empower your enemies. It will strengthen your enemies, right? You know, they say there's one rule in racing, like running, like especially long distance. Don't ever look back. Why? Not only are you going to mess up your mechanics, right? It's good to have alignment and all that stuff, 
But there's something about when, when there's somebody who's right behind you, when they see you look back, there's something psychologically that happens. They think that you're worried. And your anxiety about, oh, he might be getting tired. He can hear me on his heels. He's looking back to see how far away I am. And what happens? They get their second wind. And all of a sudden, they just kick it up another gear and go. And this is true in all kinds of competition. Whenever your opponent senses fear in you, weakness in you, exhaustion in you, somehow, no matter how tired they are, they begin to feel a little bit fresher. They begin to fight a little bit harder because they have a glint of hope. Paul says, don't give that to your enemy because it doesn't belong to them. They shouldn't have it. They should have no reason to hope. Your testimony should be to them, all is lost. We are in despair because their God has purchased their victory by the blood of their son, Jesus Christ. Our message to our opponents is that Jesus wins, we win, and you lose. Now, as we, as we close out our time together, um, one of my favorite quotes uh, is from this pastor. He says, a, a good sermon is not like a club that beats upon the will, but rather it's like a sword that cuts to the heart. Now the danger with a sermon about living a life and fighting the battle worthy of the gospel is that you might walk away from this sermon feeling like you've been beaten by a club, especially if you are the kind who likes to beat up on yourself anyways. You're never doing enough. You're not giving enough. You're not serving enough. You're not reading enough. You're not praying enough am I even really a Christian because I'm not doing enough for God? As if what God needs most from you is to do more for him. Friends, that's not the gospel, right? You can tell that's you, by the way, if somebody asks you how you're doing and you tell them what you're doing. Anyways, let that one simmer a little bit. I, I don't want you to walk away from this sermon feeling like you've been beaten with a club, but I do want, I do want to cut you to the heart. I want the Lord's word to cut you to the heart how could it not? Friend, stop for a second. Think about the gospel. Think about the glory and beauty and magnificence and holiness of the gospel. Now, stop and juxtapose that with your life and be honest with yourself. Are you living in a manner truly, completely, fully worthy of the gospel? The answer has to be no. It has to be no. Not only can you not live a life worthy of the gospel, you can't even live a life worthy of your own standards. You can't even keep your own moral code. I think about it all the time. I get in the car with my kids and I say, all right, buckle up. And then 30 seconds into the drive, I hear the ding from my seatbelt right? I, I can't even live up to my own moral code, much less the standards of the holiness and righteousness and love of the gospel. And this is why we need Jesus. Because we're not worthy, right? I'm not worthy. Just because I'm up here and you're there doesn't mean I'm worthy. I'm, not, I'm less worthy than you. If you got to know me, trust me, it would take you five seconds to figure it out. I am not worthy of the gospel. You are not worthy of the gospel. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes home to us. Because you know what I'm going to say, right? You know what I'm going to say. Sometimes preachers don't like to do this because they think, ah, oh, we've seen this old trick before. It's not a trick. And we need to say it every time we get together. Jesus is worthy. In every area that you fail to live up to the gospel, Jesus succeeded. And every time that you disobeyed the law, he obeyed it. Every time that you've had a, a thought that has aimed in the opposite direction of God and his love and his righteousness, his thoughts were perfectly pure. Every time that you faltered out there on the battlefield, he never wavered. He died on the battlefield because he was perfectly obedient. He died on the battlefield completely worthy. <laughs> the only soldier who shouldn't die. Isn't that how a tragedy goes? The worthless guy, he somehow survives. That's us. 
the worthy one for some reason dies. That's Jesus. He is your worth. He is my worth. He is our worth, and he gave his life for us. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you're not worthy and your life can never measure up, I don't want to tell you that that's not true because it is true. But praise be to God. The accounting that you have to give on the last day is not for your life, not for your works, not for your deeds, not for your righteousness, not for your thoughts and intentions. The account ultimately that you have to give has been covered by Christ and his perfectly worthy, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly loving life. Which is why I told James when I was gonna come preach, that I knew I was gonna preach this sermon, that we would sing Not In Me as the response song. Man, hymns are so good, right? No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, although do please lift your hands. No tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is... It's Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load, and isn't it weary, <laughs> was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus... <laughs> died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the mercy that we have received from you freely. Thank you for relieving us of the burden. Thank you for empowering us by your Holy Spirit, even though we are not worthy, to, by your grace, move in the right direction towards worthiness. Help us to go out and live lives in this crazy, dark, fallen world that reflect your true value and worth by your grace and for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.